Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today's Supercharged Secret is going to speak to so many people who have found themselves in a relationship where they felt overly responsible for their partner's well-being. Maybe they even put their partner's needs before their own and attempted to rescue them from most or all of their problems, such as addiction, family relationship issues, or problems meeting responsibilities. If this sounds like you or someone you know, this episode is going to heal you from the phenomenon we talk about as codependency. And today's guest has so much wisdom and insight to share about what it's like to want above all else to help someone she cared for deeply as she saw his life spiral downwards with no real explanation and ultimately discovering that he was harboring a secret addiction that took his life. And once she discovered the truth, she has made it her mission to find out as much as she can about addiction and how it can plague anyone, even those whom you'd least expect. Armed with this newfound knowledge, she has written a gripping and powerful memoir about her experiences and embarked on a career shift to help others with addiction after a successful journalism career for over three decades, including being a longtime writer for the New York Times. Please welcome Eileen Zimmerman. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. Well, I love your new book, Smacked, and it was just written in such a way that I felt like it drew you in immediately to what you went through. And the book actually starts out with a very harrowing piece of your story, which is the discovery of your ex-husband, Peter, in his house. So can you tell us a little bit about who Peter was and... What happened that day? Absolutely. So Peter was, at the time that I discovered that he died, he was my ex-husband for about for five years. And um, he was someone I met on his 23rd birthday. I was looking for a job in New York City. And um, we struck up a friendship. He left his job as an employment counselor and wound up going back to school for chemistry. And then ultimately, he was a chemist for several years and became a lawyer. And um, during that time, we were friends for a few years. And then... Something shifted and we became romantically involved and ultimately um, got married and had two kids together and wound up in a 20-year marriage that ended with um, Peter having an affair. But um, to be fair, as the book outlines, we were pretty unhappy, um, a ton of dysfunction as, as in many marriages and a lot of unresolved issues, I think, for both of us from childhood. So um, we split up, but and as soon as we, almost as soon as we separated, Peter's behavior and appearance began to change. And at first I thought, well, you know, he's going through one of these stereotypical midlife crises. He was 51. All of a sudden he dropped all this weight. He started running marathons, you know, got an expensive, you know, espresso maker (laughs) and a sports car and, you know, all of that stuff. So I just thought, well, that's his, you know, this is how he's coping. Um, But, but then um, as as the years went by, he didn't stop losing weight. He kept losing weight. Um, and he was always kind of a workaholic. He was a partner in a very prestigious Silicon Valley based law firm. Uh, he was an intellectual property attorney. His ego was very wrapped up in that. And as you can imagine, the more hours you build, the more money you make and all of that. So he, uh, he worked really long hours his whole career. And so I just figured he was working even longer hours and he was more stressed and he was a senior partner. And um, after we split up, he also 
changed the direction of his life in that he became more, I think, like the people he worked with. He decided he wanted our kids to go to private school, which I accepted because the public schools were tough, but I it was uncomfortable for me. But there were more people at his income level there. And he bought a beautiful, like, $2 million house by a beautiful beach in a very posh town in San Diego, which was a mile from his office, but about 25 minutes from his kids who were living largely with me. So you could see a shift in priorities and also this dedication to work, or that's at least what I thought it was. Um, And so at the time of the prologue that you described, it that me, I had, I decided to drive up to Peter's house to figure out what was going on with him. And up until this point for about a year and a half, he'd become increasingly sick and he'd lost about 30 to 40 pounds. Um, he looked, his he kind of had a gray pallor. His teeth were discolored. He was losing his hair at an accelerated rate. And he was acting really bizarrely. He would forget things all the time. He was having car accidents. He lost his wallet repeatedly. He lost his phone. He would forget to show up to pick up our son from school and leave him there for hours. Um, He would tell my son he was going up to the mobile station that was a mile away from their house to get a diet soda, which he liked with a lot of ice. And he'd come back three hours later without the soda and say, oh, I forgot, you know, or he'd forget the night his son was going to stay there, like all kinds of crazy things. And he'd send these long meandering texts that were almost unintelligible. So, you know, and when I would ask him about it, anytime I confronted why he was absent, why he was sleeping all the time, why he was sick, he would say like, I'm just working a lot. You know, I'm having trouble sleeping. I've been smoking too much. Um, he, I knew he was taking Ambien to sleep. I knew he was drinking a ton of coffee. You know, I didn't know um, what else he was using until that day. And so the day that um, that I found him, it had come on the heels of two days of intense sickness and my kids had been staying at his house and he was very, very weak and sleeping and sick and vomiting. And, and my kids felt really frustrated. And my son who was 16 tried to take Peter to the hospital and Peter snapped at him and said, you know, he would not go. He said, you're driving me crazy with your nagging. You're just like your mother because I'd been nagging him. And my kids left and we couldn't reach him for two days. And so I said, I'm going to go up there and I'm taking him to the hospital. I don't care what happens. And so I drove up to his house, which was, again, this beautiful house by the beach. You know, I opened the door. It was very quiet. Um, but, but something was wrong and I knew it. And it's funny how your body knows before your mind does, because as I was walking up the stairs to his house, you'd walk in, you'd walk up the stairs and it was this beautiful wide floor, all bamboo. So really light wood. And there was tons of windows and sunlight because it faced the beach and it overlooked a lagoon. And I was calling his name and calling his name and he isn't answering. And I see on the counter, there's a diet soda. There's an asthma inhalator. There's a lot of candy wrappers And his door to the bedroom is open at the end of the hall and I'm calling his name and I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking if he's just asleep, he's going to kill me for coming into his house and waking him up. And on the other hand, I think my body was afraid that something was seriously, seriously wrong. Um, Although I I had thought on the way driving up there, well, it's not like he's going to be dead. He's not going to be dead. Mm. He's just really sick. And then I opened the door to his bedroom and I saw the sheets were all crumpled and there were some bloody tissues and I'm calling his name and I turn my head and there he is. He's, he's lying on the floor between the bathroom and the bedroom in his underwear, his head on a cardboard box. And all around me are signs of drug addiction. There are syringes. There's a big rock of white powder. There are safes open with orange pill bottles spilling out. But in my shock, all I saw was his body. Um, and so it took me a while that day 
it took the medical examiner basically to tell me that they thought he had died of an overdose when this whole time I saw him on the floor and I thought, oh my God, he died of a heart attack. He worked so hard, he worked himself to death. And that, that may be true, but that's not what he died of. When you're recounting this story today, do you still see flashes of images as you saw him that day, just little pieces coming I, back to you? It's so, yes, I do. I do. Even during this, the book tour before it got shut down from COVID, just reading passages from the book, you know, I thought this, this July, it's five years. And I thought, no, you know, I processed this, but no, I do. I can see it so clearly. I can smell it. You know, the smell of that house, like everything. Right. So you called 911. And at that point, like you said, you were just still trying to get your bearings. You didn't notice that this was an issue related to addiction. Did you, did you see any other signs of addiction before, or it really just was a lot of different types of things that he was saying that just didn't make sense to you? Well, you know, in hindsight, of course, there were all signs of addiction. I mean, if I could have written a book about classic signs of opioid addiction, like he had it. But in my mind, he was so well educated. He had a master's in chemistry. He had the JD. He was he gave the speech at law school graduation. He was number one in his class. Like he was at a really powerful law firm and he did well. He he was a really, really smart guy. And he knew as a chemist what those chemicals do to the brain. So it never even occurred to me that he would take a chance, not with two teenage kids sleeping down the hall. Like it just felt like it did, you know, it didn't even occur to me. Um, but there were all the signs there. He was doing a very classic thing that people that are in the throes of opioid addiction do. He was nodding or, you know, and heroin people with heroin addiction often do it where he'd be sitting up and my son would say, God, it's so weird. Dad's sitting at the kitchen counter reading the mail and he just falls asleep. Now, perhaps if you were an addiction psychiatrist, you would think, oh, I know what this is. But to me, I thought, oh, poor guy, he's working so hard. He can't even, can't even keep his eyes open to read the mail, you know, or if I'd say, what, why didn't you show up to pick up our son at school? Um, he'd say there was an accident and I would have checked traffic and had seen there was no accident, but I thought, why would he lie? So he, mm-hmm. so I think, oh, well, there, there must've been an accident that happened right after I checked it. Or he'd say like, I had a meeting and I got called out. It was a, it was an urgent meeting. I left my phone in my car or, uh, you know, there was a client that needed me. I, um, I wasn't feeling well. I had the flu one time, a couple of times he told me he had food poisoning. And I remember thinking like, God, he gets food poisoning a lot. Like, <laughs> But you know, I just, I wasn't trained, I guess, like a lot of people to see those signs in someone like Peter. And most people who aren't mental health professionals or physicians aren't trained. And at the same time, I think also an important piece of this is the preconceived notions of what an opioid addict looks like. So did you have some preconceived notions before knowing that Peter was somebody who was addicted? Yes. I mean, I certainly did. And I have to say, I say it in the book and I'm embarrassed about it, but I I, who consider myself very liberal and progressive, and I've often written about social justice issues, I thought, you know, somebody that's putting needles into his or her veins is someone that is homeless or mentally ill or in in such incredibly bleak conditions that that actually looks like a good idea. So I'm talking people that would be on the side of the freeway with a sign, you know, homeless, looking for anything. Um, 
I just, I, I figured it was not, or it was someone that was, you know, socioeconomically very poor. What I'd read about, you know, the opioid epidemic in Appalachian and West Virginia, that's where I figured it was. I didn't figure it, figure it was an Ivy League educated, you know, very wealthy white guy, you know, who had all the resources he needed to get himself help, whether it was outpatient or inpatient treatment for addiction, mental health counseling. I mean, he he had the money to buy anything he needed. But the one thing he I, he needed, he didn't get, which was probably some mental health counseling um, and some soul searching. <laughs> and Eileen, I'm so glad that you're being honest about your preconceived notions, because I think a lot of people have them, um, no matter how educated you think you are. And I think my viewpoint as a mental health provider and somebody who actually evaluates a lot of professionals or fitness for duty and mental health issues related to their addictions. I'm not surprised, but if you asked me years ago, I would be surprised too. But now a big piece of my work is trying to help professionals who become addicted. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. And it's amazing when you think about these people, because again, there is a preconceived notion of, but you're the director of this hospital or you are the senior partner in this law firm, or you are this world famous CEO and you just don't fit the picture. And, and how were you functional so long? Because sometimes they still go to work for years and years as they're doing this. Absolutely. And that's usually why the evaluation occurs because something <laughs> happens at their job. And then they come under the investigation of maybe a licensing board or their right. fellow employers. Um, and, and this is something that's really startling. America's opioid epidemic has driven total drug overdose deaths to record numbers. Just a couple of years ago, the overdose deaths were hitting 70,000. That's right. And it's killing more people annually than guns, car crashes, HIV or AIDS ever have in a single year of U.S. history. But some new studies are shedding light on the population that becomes addicted. So these new studies show that the level of overdose deaths isn't just outside historical norms just for the U.S. It's also far beyond the norm among wealthy nations around the world. Wow. So again, it's not just a quote-unquote socioeconomically disadvantaged phenomenon, nor, right. is it, nor is it an ethnic minority phenomenon because nearly 90% of people who began using heroin in this last decade are white. And actually many of them did become addicted to prescription opioids first, but then eventually what's easier to get, what's cheaper to get, which one is going to give you the most high and the bang for your buck, it's heroin. And so I think that's another big uh, preconceived notion when people say, okay, well, if it is a professional, then they must just be hooked on prescription (laughs) opioids. But then they actually do go down this path where they end up using heroin. It does. It escalates. A lot of I interviewed a lot of professionals, probably much of the same population you see in your practice, and they they had all these artificial lines. So one guy that was a judge said he was snorting heroin, and he said we all thought like as long as you're not using a needle, you're not really addicted, which is which mm-hmm. is not true at all. But that was, and a lot of people yes. told me that they were like needles. Like I think Peter was an intravenous an intravenous drug user. I think that is somewhat unusual. It's not as common, but 
there are plenty of professionals snorting heroin, you know, and, and, and snorting opioids and you know, doing a lot of that pill taking. But so there were all these artificial boundaries they put in place to protect themselves. Yeah. Yes. And part of me wonders if Peter's academic background as a chemist maybe helped him to think that I'm an expert in this. I'm going to handle it differently yeah. from everyone else. I know the levels that I have to keep it to, to still keep it safe. But unfortunately, as people become more and more addicted, the part of you that's trying to make these decisions, these good decisions is also the part that's being impaired. Absolutely. You're so compromised, but you, but I agree. I think there's a level of arrogance. I think at that level of competence and success, there is a feeling like so quite a few of the men I spoke to, it just happened to be more men than women felt that they, they were not going to become addicted like other people. And as I mentioned in the book, Peter kept these very detailed logs of his dosages and the timing of his dosages, thinking he could wrest control of this thing that clearly hijacked his reward system in his brain so much more quickly than he thought. But I do think there was a level of arrogance where um, he probably figured like, I'll try it. You know, I'm not going to become addicted. Right. And he did. He had the little scale, you know, and he had a chemist knowledge of mm. how to measure and heat and, you know, probably figured he would take all of these precautions. He had plenty of medical supplies to ensure that it was safe. But as you see all the time, there's no inoculation against addiction. Yeah. Right. And in fact, after the fact, you know, you went back to his house and you read the police reports and you read the pathology reports and you read all of these reports that suggested, whoa, this was going on for way longer and yeah. much more extensively than you could have even imagined. Do you think it started his addiction after you separated, or do you think it was happening towards the end of your marriage also? That's a, that's an excellent question. And I've been asked it a lot. And my gut says probably it was starting at the end of my marriage because he was having an affair with someone younger than me, but also someone who liked to party a lot more than me. And that, that Mm -hmm. affair didn't last, but it was one where you know, like during a lot of divorces, I, his phone's on a counter, I'm going to check the text. And I'm not saying that they were texting about using pills and stuff, but they were drinking a lot. And I think there was a lot of partying. He had started using cannabis with some of the younger associates. This is way back. Um, they would like go out on the weekend and I'd say like, what are you doing? And he was like, well, you know, and one time he said, oh my gosh, it's so much stronger than I remember. And he got sick, but mm. now I don't even know if that, that was the truth. So, and then when we split up, um, I had some, I, I stayed connected to some of the people that knew him after we, professionally, after we split up. And he was getting, um, I think, shipments of kind of supplements and supplies from the dark web. You know, the, um, mm-hmm. apparently the boxes would come with just Chinese addresses and nothing else. And I think he was getting a, a lot of like amphetamine type st- or stimulant pills so that he could run because he was really into running half marathons and marathons. He really wanted to lose weight. He was about 20 pounds overweight when we split up. He did lose it. So there was a period where he just like looked great because Mm -hmm. he had lost 20 pounds and he could work really long hours. And so my hunch is that's how it started. From from what I've gleaned from addiction psychiatrists and people that do a lot of treatment of people that struggle with addiction, um, you don't really start using needles. You start with like pills and then snorting, mm-hmm. and then you work your way up as you're not, you've probably seen too. So, um, but I would say, I think the minute we separated, he had permission to just, you know, go hog wild because I wasn't going to see it. And mm-hmm. so he did. 
Yeah. And I think that gateway hypothesis that you just alluded to, it really is one that we kind of see the progression of drug use in people, meaning that maybe it does start with something like cannabis. And then it starts with something that might be what they see as performance enhancing and stimulants absolutely is something that people believe is performance enhancing. Unfortunately, as you're coming down from stimulants, you feel awful. And yes. <laughs> oftentimes you'll have to use another class of drug to make yourself feel better as you get more and more into the throes of addiction. And in fact, Peter was this person as well, that there may be his main drug of choice was opioids, but he's obviously dabbled in other ones as well. And yes, was perhaps using, for example, cocaine to also try to offset some of the rebound experiences from the opioids. And I think you also just mentioned something that is really important to talk about, which is that there is a very small minority of people who just use drugs for the hell of it. It's kind of like, they just like, they just like (laughs) it. Like they like, like they just want to, Um, you know, people who might be a little, uh, what we might call an antisocial personality type where they're just like, why not? I don't care about responsibility. This seems fun, but the predominance of people who struggle with addiction, they start utilizing drugs to escape pain. Absolutely. Whether it's physical, mental, emotional, I agree. Yeah. It seems to be common. And it makes a lot of sense that he was struggling with his job. You know, there were so many responsibilities as he became more and more successful. It was sort of this crushing pressure to keep achieving, but also his marriage to you was falling apart. You guys weren't happy anymore. And you guys really struggled towards the end of your marriage. And for him to have the affair, the way that you described in the book and your conversation with him, when he told you, I mean, in some ways it's like, he wanted you to know, because it was sort of his statement of I've pulled the plug. I'm yeah. Pulled the trigger. I I want it. I want out. I mean, I think he kept saying it's my turn now. It's funny too, because as the wife who'd been with like the kids and trying to work when I, I was thinking like your turn, like when's it my turn? (laughs) Yeah. And, and, And I would say like your turn for what? And he wouldn't answer that, but I think he just thought like, now I'm going to live the way I want to live. Like I was this, you know, I come home from work. We have young kids. Like, and not that he didn't love his kids and still wanted to be present, but he, but his actions did not speak to that. He, he really checked out. I mean, he, he was as present as he needed to be, but he definitely did stuff, what he thought he was doing for himself, which included drugs and also just overconsumption. Um, Because I described cleaning out his house after he died, and he'd only been living there less than four years. It was this gorgeous house that he wanted so badly. And it was filled with things, duplicate Mm. things, duplicate bicycles and computers and televisions that he wasn't going to use. That clearly wasn't satisfying him because he was still, like you say, trying to find a way out of his pain. I think that he was, you know, I think he was suffering from depression. He was always very melancholy and Mm. um, he had a lot of problems being motivated and focusing. And so, you know, I found a ton of Adderall and Ritalin and um, Mm. methamphetamine. So it makes sense. Yeah. It's these discoveries that after the fact, it makes, again, so much sense knowing the person that he was. And like you said, maybe he did have a melancholic predisposition already. Maybe he suffered from chronic self-doubt, even though he was achieving. And at the end of his life, when you went to look at all the things that he was keeping in his house, it was almost like he just kept buying and, and doing things to excess to try to fill that void, but it was never 
fulfilled and yes, drugs gave him this brief escape. And then before you know it, physiologically it hijacks you. So even if there was a will to say, this is wrong, I want to do something different with my life. It is so hard to try to do it all by yourself. And he wasn't telling anybody. He certainly didn't tell you or his children. But I also reflected as I was reading your book. And again, I appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability in the book so much. I think it's hard to write a memoir. I mean, I think it's much much more difficult than people think it is, you know? Um, (laughs) I know everybody's writing a memoir and it's like, it's going to be hard. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, because if you're going to do it the way that is going to impact people and really help people, and I see that that is your mission, you got to be honest with yourself. You got to be honest with your own areas for improvement and and what led you down a certain path. And I particularly took note of just your reflection as a child, looking at your relationship with your parents and how they related to each other. Could you tell me a little bit about what you learned about marriages and, (sighs) you know, wife and husband relations when you were a kid? Right. And I mean, and so much of how, how, what we become in life has to do with those early attachments and the early modeling we see, but my parents had a terribly unhappy marriage and, um, they were both these book, you know, I I don't know whether it's just pictures from the fifties, but they were both beautiful and got married and I think had high hopes. And it's odd. My mom was really happy and thriving until she, um, had to quit her job and have children. And so, um, I've often thought, and, um, and I, I have two sisters and one of my sisters, and I, I help take care of her now. She's older and she has uh, Parkinson's disease. But we were saying, like, we figured, like, having children, ironically, which is something I think she loved, also was kind of the end of her happiness because it mm-hmm. confined her to the house. And it allowed my father, and they struggled financially. We had a lot of financial insecurity growing up. We left the Bronx to move to the suburbs, and we just never had enough money for where we were living. And my dad had two jobs, they fought constantly about money. He constantly cut her down. One time he cut up her credit cards. It's like an I Love Lucy show, you know, like he's screaming at her and and she was very disempowered and my father was very unhappy and restless and he wound up having a secret life pretty much for 18 years. He drove a limousine or he drove a New York City cab for a while, then he drove a limousine and he had affairs for 18 Mm. years with women, long-term affairs. He wound up the last person he was saying was the person he left my mom for and stayed with until the end of his life. And she just, she was just completely depressed. I mean, I now can see it. And she um, just kind of was waiting for him, I think, to come back to the marriage in a way, and they didn't. So my experience of my parents' marriage was that it was a misery and it was a prison and that, you know, as a woman, I was going to lose and the irony is I got into a relationship that I don't know that it had to be that way, but that's what I was expecting. And that's kind of what I got. I felt really trapped economically. My husband earned so much more than I did as a journalist. And that meant that I was largely responsible for our kids. And, you know, that limited my ability to, to, to move ahead in my career. I did as much as I could. And I think I did okay. But um, I also had no, no power. I was not able to really control anything or make any choices. I remember wanting to volunteer actually to spend a few hours a week volunteering at a school. I ultimately did volunteer at, and he was like, I don't know if you should commit because what if I have to go away on a business trip or what if I'm going to be, you know, in other words, I could never count on him for anything with the kids because work had to come first or that's what Mm -hmm. I accepted. And my dad was pretty much, he was an engineer who I think, you know, was always working. It was always absent. And um, that's, that's the model of marriage. I saw it certainly wasn't loving and mutually supportive and, um, and empowering for either party. 
Right. Um, I appreciate you so much sharing that because I think we learn such important lessons as children. It's our first template for how the world works. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's hard to escape that because again, you know, those pieces of information stick to your brain. Like it just never goes away. Even if later on you see other examples, like, you know, maybe other relatives, maybe your friends when you're an adult, but what really, really stays with you is that first parental model. That's so true. And I didn't realize until after the marriage was over, my, my marriage ended at, I was the same age as my mother was. And I remember thinking, Mm. oh my God, I'm my mother. Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be, I mean, I love her, but I thought, oh, I don't want to have a marriage like that. You know, and it turned out I did. (laughs) Right. And, and what made you still want to get married with some of these thoughts and ideas? Um, why did you still want to marry Peter? Well, because I think, um, my, although my, I think I know my parents love me. My father was really, um, you know, a, a, a daughter's relationship with her father is very determining in terms of what she yes. thinks of herself. Right. And he, um, spent a lot of time cutting me down, telling me like, it's a good thing you're smart. Cause you're not pretty or who's gonna, you know, with a face like that, who's going to be with you. And I think, you know, those little hurts over the years added up in ways I didn't realize. And by the time I was in my twenties, I, um, I recount a scene in the book where we tell my dad we're getting married. We say, oh, we're going to get married. We're getting married. It wasn't a big deal because we were paying and we didn't have a lot of money. And Peter gets up to go to the bathroom and my father looks at me and says, don't blow it. And instead of thinking like, why are you saying this to me? Why don't you tell him that? I thought he's right. I better not blow it. Like, I'm really lucky that this guy wants to marry me. He's smart. He's handsome. And he's going to go places. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. I'll be safe with him. I think I was looking for some safety too, because my parents' marriage was chaotic and um, there was so much financial insecurity all the time. My dad would lose jobs. The Peter seemed like such a safe bet, safe bet for me. But, um, and I felt like I wasn't going to have a choice. I thought if he, if I do blow it, who's going to want me, you know, and it, it doesn't matter even if objectively other people tell you, oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, that's what was inside me. And it breaks my heart to hear that your own father, despite him loving you, say yeah. these things to you. And, and you're absolutely right that the father's relationship with his daughter is so important. I know that our culture is very hell-bent on always talking about the mother-child yes. relationship, but you know what? The father-child <laughs> relationship is so important. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, because if it's, it's a different type of dynamic, right? But if it's a father son relationship, then it's more like your father's teaching you how to be a man and what it means to be a man. If it's a father daughter relationship, they are your first model for a potential romantic partner. If you're heterosexual, it just is. Absolutely. And there's a lot of, there's evidence that I cite in the book and there's a lot of studies that show that, that is a really pivotal relationship. It's interesting you mentioned fathers and sons too, because my, fa- my son was 16 when his dad died, but that year and a half kind of leading up to it, his father was like really not available in any way emotionally. And now that he's 21, he said, he has said to me, like, I don't really have a model for how to be a man in the world. And I've said to him, you have to look at the fathers that you know that you respect and look at what they do and how they... Yes. And he doesn't have an older brother or so it, it is, I, I mean, I think it's been a profound loss for him, but we often yeah. talk about grieving daughters that grieve their, you know, mothers that, and um, I think you're right. I think we don't write enough or put enough um, emphasis as a culture on what happens to 
to boys. I think we do with African-American boys. I've seen, I mean, like the fact that there's a lot of fathers that were imprisoned or absent, but in, um, it, at least as far as white or upper middle class, they don't, you don't see that much written about it, but I think it's, it's equally as damaging. I mean, Peter was there, but not really like he could yeah. be physically there, but he wasn't really present. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, and then my son had to go through those pivotal years and not really have, um, not really have a model for what it, what it is like to be a man in this world. Right. I mean, from the time where identity development is the most important for a teenager, Peter was already kind of lost in the ether because the addiction had already taken hold. So as your son was 12 or 13, Peter Mm -hmm. was already struggling with his addiction in secret. Then of course he passes away when your son is only 16. And so all the years that people spend thinking about who they are, wondering where they come from, who they're going to be in the future, what their role models are going to be. He right. did lose out on that. But of course, there's not a, a complete loss of hope. I'm so glad that you're telling this to your son and everybody out there who's listening should also know this, that if you didn't have those early models, it's never too late to look at other models. Look at Aww. people who are a little older than than you, people who you know might be your parents' age and might be a different kind of a father figure, somebody Absolutely. who's a coach yeah. or teacher. And, and I think that that's, that's a good thing that um, we can always come back and repair those early attachment problems that sometimes we have. But as you're telling your story and just what you perceived in terms of your parents' relationship, and then of course your own relationship with your dad, also how disenfranchised your mom seemed, it really speaks to this concept of why people sometimes become codependent without recognizing it. You gave up a lot for Peter. Your relationship with Peter was all about him in the power position and you just adjusting because of him. You moved to San Diego because of his career. You did things for him and your career and your interests always took a back seat. And also, I wonder if you struggled with your own self-esteem issues to the point where maybe sometimes you felt like, but I have to, I have to take care of him. I'm responsible for keeping him happy and you know, kind of making sure he doesn't get angry or frustrated and just trying to make his life as perfect as possible. <laughs> Did you ever feel that pressure? Yeah, you might as well. I, I wish I was going to you for therapy. This is great. No, I mean, that's so perfect. That's ex- I, And I also felt like I can't live here. I can't do this without him. So we need to keep daddy happy because mm-hmm. he's going to have to go out. And, you know, I have to say, I didn't know, I don't know what it's like, or I didn't know back then when it was like to have the pressure of supporting a, a spouse and children. I mean, I, we used to tell the kids like dad earns the bread and mom earns the butter, which was also, I realized <laughs> completely condescending, but I totally huh. bought into that. I was like, yeah, that's, that's a great way yeah. to describe me. I'm butter, dad's bread, you know? Oh. And so my kids saw me superfluous and I saw myself that way, but I did. I saw my role even after divorce. I saw my role as keeping Peter on a steady keel. Like I would um, keep the family calendar and I would uh, remind him repeatedly, don't forget it's back to school night Tuesday on Friday. Don't forget Mm -hmm. it's, and then that morning. And then I'd save him a seat and I'd text him, are you here yet? Tell me when you park. Ostensibly because it was the right thing for our kids, but you're right. It was also because if he was happy, the ship could keep moving. He would go, you know, he'd go to work. He would be okay. He could perform at a high level. 
you know, and now he created a life where there were so many expenses, not necessarily for me personally, but you have kids in private school. Now you have a big mortgage on your other house, you know, and you have to pay child support and you have to pay your stuff. And he liked to buy expensive wine and expensive clothes. And he liked to travel and have a lot of cars and motorcycles. And so he had built this expensive life. And I was always afraid that he was going to kind of crack up or lose it under the pressure. And so I did, I tried to minimize any family stress so that he could do what he needed to do. And we could just kind of get through these years. And then I figured after our son was out of the house, I could figure out what, what I wanted or what my life was going to look like. Right. But it was always on the back burner as well as always, always. like Eileen comes last because yep. you still have your kids also that would exactly. be before Peter. So <laughs> right. um, yeah, there's yeah. The kids, there's Peter, right. Yep. And so, uh, you know, so there's so much that you were struggling with to try to, again, keep Peter happy. You were given this message, not even subliminally, but directly <laughs> by right. your dad. You're lucky to be with somebody like Peter. So you're like, okay, well, I guess I am. And it, it really does take hold, even if you're not consciously thinking about it all the time. And of course, seeing your mom's model yeah. of always sacrificing herself for her family. And and yet Peter was also really unhappy himself. As you mentioned, he yeah. was melancholic and you knew that he had that predisposition. Perhaps he had his own growing pains growing up. And so when he, he became successful to him, that was his new identity. It was, totally. let me keep the excess going, you know? Right. This is a statement of who I've become and I don't ever want to go back there. Well, it was so, I mean, there is something that is very kind of impressive when you say, oh, my husband's an intellectual property attorney partner at Wilson Sunsey. I mean, I think he felt that way. He felt like, yeah, you know what I do for a living? You know, my law firm did Google's IPO or my, you know, so he felt really powerful. And I think part of that was he grew up very poor. His parents uh, are were and are evangelical Christians. And um, even though, even though I feel like they showed they were proud of him, I think he felt like they were never, I think he felt like they wanted him to be a minister. He, I remember him telling me a story about him telling them he wanted to go to Cornell and they were disappointed that he hadn't picked a Christian college, whereas most parents would be like, Cornell, you know, like mm -hmm. psyched. Um, and so I think he felt like he couldn't earn their pride unless he was a different, you know, he wound up becoming an atheist. He rejected it. I mean, I think he had yeah. been born again and then he, tossed it aside and it was heartbreaking for them. But at the same time, he couldn't, he kept craving that validation. And it, it felt like that in our family too. Like we could never like love him enough. I could, he, mm. if he did something nice and I said, thank you for that, he'd sort of take it, but then he would remind you over and over again, he did it for you. And it felt like it was a bottomless pit kind of, of this need for validation, which makes me very sad now. And I, I feel for him, but I don't think there was a way he could scratch that itch. Right. And I think when you don't feel that level of unconditional love from your parents, and again, you know, no one's perfect, but no, you know, right. parent, parents are not perfect, but it is again, that sort of first model of who you'll be in the world to other people and to yourself. And if you don't, sense that you can be loved unconditionally, you're just going to always need some form of external validation. And I think it was different for you and Peter, it sounds like, because for you, a lot of your validation was hinging on Peter's happiness because he became the focal point. But for Peter, I think he didn't know where he was supposed to get it from. So he tried to get it from everything. 
he tried to, and he was adopted, which I also think, and he wasn't adopted immediately. He was adopted after about four months in foster care. So I think mm-hmm. it was a, a loving, safe home, but there were other children. And um, yeah. I think I wrote this in the book. His mother had once said to me that he was not affectionate at first. Mm-hmm. And she thought he had trouble attaching because of that. And mm-hmm. I remember telling Peter that, and he was like, oh, my mother, the psychologist, like that's ridiculous. But <laughs> she turned out to be- Kind of right. right. <laughs> yeah, she was kind of yeah. right. I mean, I think, you know, that's a, that's a very crucial time in an infant's development. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, you know, this just shows this other side of people who become addicted. You know, I think it's easy for society to shun them, to say that'll never happen to me, but it can start with such an innocent seed. It can just start with, I wish I was happier or I wish I was loved more, or I wish there was a way to handle this stress better. And then you reach for that first drug. And once it hijacks your reward system, as you've mentioned, Eileen, sometimes even with your best intentions, it's very hard to get better. It's very hard unless you have the right support system, unless you're going to be honest, which is so hard for somebody once they become addicted, because there's that spiral of shame you know, what will people think of me? If he already thought that he was a horrible human being, that he wasn't deserving of love, how do you think people are going to react if he says, by the way, guys, I'm a drug addict, right? Right, right. And if if your ego is so wrapped up in your professional persona, I I am sure Peter thought if he told anyone at work, he would lose everything. He would be disbarred. and, And that isn't, I don't believe that's what would have happened. I think his firm would have helped him. He was a really good lawyer, but he he was not going to tell anyone. I came really close right before he died when he, he said, I said, are you really sick? We were on the phone and he said, mm-hmm. yes, I am. And I said, you know, he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, if I were you, I would go, I, if I had as much money as you, I would go to like the best clinic I could go to and figure out what was wrong with me. Yeah. He obviously knew what was wrong with him and he, he could have, but I think he felt like that was not open for him. He was going to have to do it himself. Yeah. Yes. And even after you guys were divorced, as you mentioned, you were co-parenting and you were still taking on that role of caretaking. You were still saying, shouldn't you go to another doctor and get a second opinion? Whenever he didn't show up for your kids, you would cover for him in a way that would yeah. let the kids feel less disappointed. Like, oh, I'm sure dad remembered, but something yes, just came up. Yeah. It's hard I often to feel stop like doing it, that. <laughs> I know. I often, in hindsight, I, when I was writing the book, I thought, God, I, I enabled so much without realizing it because yeah. I also covered, right. I, I was also enabling him to lie because I was like, no, 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 he didn't mean it. I'm sure he was working. He said there was an accident, you know, and, um, and I, I wish I hadn't done that. I mean, I wish I, I could, you know, there's so many things I wish, I wish I had not been so blind to what was right in front of me. I wish I didn't have so much implicit bias in my, you know, mind, but, um, but yes, you're right. I was, and I was caring for him. And I, and I guess, because even though it was a complicated marriage and it was unhappy and he could be such a bully about money, I still cared about him a lot. And I felt really bad for him. He looked so sick. Mm-hmm. It was really hard not to feel like, you know, good God, let me help you. Like, what is, right. what can I do? Um, but as you mentioned in the beginning, like if, if someone who is struggling with a substance use disorder does not want to get help, you cannot force it, you know? Yeah. I, I couldn't force him to go. Yeah. And it's also so difficult because the power dynamics of your relationship had already <laughs> been set in stone. So you weren't going to strong arm him into anything. There no was way. threats he could make like, well, I'm giving you some money for the children. Do you want me to take that away? I mean, there's just so many things he could oh, threaten yeah. you that it was so difficult, I think, to, to be able to try to turn that tide 
um, when he was not able to admit it himself. And, you know, when we talk about this idea of wanting to over care for people who we love and this idea that sometimes we call codependency, it's, it's not just about addiction because you didn't know it was addiction. It's just right. about it's just about saving the person from anything, saving them from themselves, you know, making sure that they still looked responsible to your kids. <laughs> exactly. You know? Oh my goodness. And it's hard. It's hard to stop because you want the best for the individual. You want the best for your children. You don't want to see them get hurt. And no, no. even despite Peter cheating on you, and like you said, having this tough relationship with him, I think it's very clear in the book, you still wanted your children to have their father. So I did want to paint him as a villain, you know, that wasn't, and it would be, it would be disingenuous to say like he had an affair. That's why the marriage ended. He had an affair, but, but, you know, it takes two people to fail at a marriage. And I, I had my rigidities. I was really anxious. I think he felt like I was not adventurous enough. I never wanted anyone else to watch the kids. So we could never go away for, I mean, there were a lot of, you know, and I, I think also the fact that I was, um, disempowered was probably not particularly attractive to him. Um, you know, always waiting to see what I, what I should do. What do you think? You know, like not being assertive, you know? So I feel like it would have been, um, it would have been wrong to, you know, people are so complicated. It would have been wrong to paint him with one paint, you know, with one brush stroke, you know, it was complicated. Yes. He was very punishing with money, with control. Mm -hmm. But if you took like finance out of the equation, he could be a really good friend. Like we could have yeah. a really good time and have good conversations, but whenever money entered it, he had a lot of, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a Bravado. psychologist, but I, yeah. And I felt like he had a real pathological relationship with money. Like he mm-hmm. did not want to be poor again. He grew up really poor and he just, you know, yeah. he was like, I'm not going to be broke again. I spent too many years like that. And so it became this thing yeah. where he had to keep it to himself. He once said to me, like, I'm not your father. I don't have to support you. I just have to support them. And I'm thinking like, well, I'm here in this expensive city. So you kind of do have to help me because we came because you wanted to be here. But yeah. 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 He had a house in Del Mar. I I went to grad school in San Diego and Del Mar Mar was where we went when we wanted to pretend to be fancy when we were in grad (laughs) school. So I know very well what Del Mar is like. It's lovely. It's lovely. It's adorable. Yeah. (laughs) It's a, it's an adorable place if you have a lot of money for sure. If you have a lot of money. Yeah. Um, But I, but I think as you're talking about Peter, you know, it, it makes so much sense that he would act out the way that he did, you know, in terms of sometimes being a bully, sort of puffing out his chest when he's talking about his achievements and the finances, you know, the people who sometimes are the most depressed and the most sad and the most hurt themselves, they hurt other people because of their own insecurities. Peter was extremely insecure. He was. And it's sad because it's in some ways, you know, we all struggle with insecurities, right? But, you know, you had your own insecurities. Peter had his, you guys acted differently, you know, to deal with those insecurities. And I think it's ultimately his unhappiness that led him to seek the first drug. And that is the Mm -hmm. story for most people who become addicted. So that's just another face of addiction that sometimes people don't realize is that, you know what? Sometimes these individuals, they they wish they didn't have to be addicted. They they just got themselves way over their heads. I've talked to addiction um, doctors that treat addiction and they said, you know, some of my clients, um, they wound up with, it was overzealously prescribed and they, and they didn't like, it was for a legitimate pain, but they also had like this other psychic pain. Like I think Peter just wasn't happy and couldn't, you know, not that we need to be happy all the time, but I think really unhappy and could not figure out why he couldn't fix that with 
shopping or food or the job, you know, he had a lot of achievements under his belt. And, um, and I, right. So I think there was this filling of it, but this guy said some people, um, you know, they, they get into it, like you said, by accidents, that first pill, but it makes them feel so much better. I mean, he used to yeah. tell me when he took a Vicodin, he just felt like things were right in the world. And I yeah. had a lot of people that were in recovery say they would take a Percocet or an Oxycontin and they felt like themselves, whatever mm. that is, even though, you know, what were they then before the opioid? I don't know, but they felt like finally they're like, I'm home. I feel like right. myself. Right. And then pretty soon that addicted state becomes their new normal and it's exactly. hard for them to actually live with their real, uh, real lives and their true reality. So obviously as this was all going on and you were making these discoveries, it's almost like this entire other person that you didn't know, even yes. though you've known him for such a long time. How did your kids process this? Because they were very shocked too. I mean, they knew yeah. that something was wrong with him, but I don't think anyone in your family or your social circle thought it's drugs. So no, nobody. How have your kids been dealing with it since everything's happened? Well, and, um, this, well, this July, it'll be five years since he died. So I would say at first it was very difficult. My daughter shared later on that she was very ashamed because she thought, how could this happen to our family? So I think there were a lot of those same implicit biases at work there with her. Like this didn't happen in their circle of private school friends, but of course it does. Um, and it was very, very tough. Uh, we all did EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a treatment for trauma especially for one adult onset trauma. So that worked really well for me and for my son and daughter. Um, my daughter didn't have a lot of time to do it. She wanted to go back to school, which in hindsight, I kind of wish I delayed that. But um, so it took, her a, it took her a long time to process it. And I would say like now she's actually finally working through it. My son had more time to work through it. But, you know, I think they, they now have their head around it. But I, I do think it will affect them. I mean, obviously for the rest of their lives, there's so many things. My daughter felt really close to her dad and there's so many things she wanted him to see her do, you know, like we mm. want our parents, watch me jump into the pool, you know, yeah. and um, right. Look at mommy, you know, daddy watch and he's not going to see it. And yeah. she has to live with that. And that's really hard for her. And my son will often say, like, he's graduating. Well, he would have been, if not for COVID gra graduating from college um, in a few weeks. And, um, he always says, I, you know, I think dad would be proud. I think dad would have been proud of me. I think dad would have, you know, liked this or wanted me to do this. And we're always conjecturing what Peter might've wanted. And I see in them how important it is for them to figure out what their dad would have wanted and would he have been proud of them. And, um, and I wonder myself as a mom, as their mother, if that will continue forever, or if there will finally come to a point as adults where they will be okay, not knowing like thinking right. like I'm, I'm the best person I can be. And I hope my dad would have liked me, but I'm, I can't keep, you know, spinning out scenarios of what ifs. Right. And just finding that closure elsewhere, you know, yeah. somewhere else, um, as opposed to trying to second guess themselves because they can't get that data now from their dad. Do you ever con concern, um, yourself with just the fear that, because addiction does run in families oh, and yeah. we know that there's a genetic predisposition. Do you worry that maybe when things get stressful and you watch maybe the coping styles of your daughter and son, which already sound different that, Oh my gosh, what if one of them becomes addicted to something? 
I do. I think about it. I actually, I thought about it a lot in the years right after. Um, and I had like these long, honest conversations of like, your chances are 10% or, or 10 times higher that you will be an alcoholic or an addict, you know, and they both know it and they know it, but you know, they also were in college and, yeah. you know, they were part schools that, that had big Greek systems and everybody was getting blackout drunk. I mean, stuff that they knew was not a good idea. And Adderall is getting passed around like Tic Tacs and right. And everybody's doing Coke now is there's a resurgence in that. And there's MDMA and there's all kinds of party drugs. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I was very concerned and, um, and, and we talked about it, but I also realized like, there's only so much I can control. Like I can't watch, I can't be with them every time they make choices. But I would say for the most part, they've made really prudent choices. I think they've, you know, um, occasionally pushed against those boundaries, but also it's always in the back of their minds too, that there is this genetic predisposition and they have to be careful, which it actually reminds me of what, what recently happened with Melissa Etheridge's son who mm-hmm. died of an opioid overdose, of maybe not even two weeks ago. And I had been reading up on that and it was, um, his Melissa Etheridge and her partner had had their son and his um, biological father, the sperm donor was David Crosby, who had a long history of addiction and alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And there's been this speculation about whether or not this, you know, this poor young guy was predisposed to it. And it really hit home because I was thinking like, you know, this is a real risk. This is a real thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for a lot of people listening, they might say, oh my gosh, well, if it runs in my family, is that ultimately my fate? No, it's not, but you will have elevated risk factors. And it's always something that you have to keep in mind that, um, and in some ways you have to be much more attentive and mindful about the way that you interact with anything that could be potentially addicting. And we haven't even gotten into process addiction. So obviously there's drug addiction, but people who have sort of these addictive predispositions, they also tend to be more addicted to other things, possibly like video games, like gambling, oh, sure. that there's a, definitely a link. And Courting, so there's all kinds of, yeah. Yeah. And you see this sometimes with people who struggle with addiction that maybe they quit their drug of choice, but then they end up being addicted to the gym and they're at the gym <laughs> five yes. hours a day. And, and, you know, at some point, even though it got them over the hump in the beginning, at some point to complete their recovery process, they have to also start letting go of that gym addiction. That is so <laughs> true. I used to go I, for my research for the book. I went to uh, some AA meetings and stuff. I noticed, and I also, I, um, I, kind of pivoted. I'm still writing, but I also went back to get a master's in social work. And my field work last year was in the Bronx at a, at a, an agency where most of the clients, uh, had addiction issues. A lot of them were in methadone maintenance, but they were also active users, but the people that were trying really hard to stay in recovery almost to a one smoked like chain smoke. Yes. I, I remember thinking like, or it was sugar, like yeah. tons of sugar on the coffee. And I, yeah. and I was told, Oh, that's, that's so common. That's so common. It's one yeah. addiction for another. Right. Yeah, it's very true. Um, I uh, consult at a residential treatment center and it's a sober treatment center, meaning, you know, people oftentimes come in dual diagnosis, they have depression and they have opioid addiction. And then, but what do they do between all of the group (laughs) treatments? Smoking like chimneys, you know? Um, So that is the one thing that basically everybody's kind of allowed because at least it's tobacco, but it's still an addiction guys. And so would be good to quit at some point, but I think (laughs) it's, it's a tough thing going through this recovery process. And Eileen, what I find so inspirational about you is that you decided now on the other side of things to 
change your career to help people. And I just love what you said in the book about, you know, maybe I wasn't able to help Peter in time, but maybe I can help other people before they die. And I just think that that's a lovely thing. And I'm going to ask you a question that, you know, might be tough to, to contemplate, but do you sometimes feel like in some ways Peter had to move on from this life so that you could reclaim your own identity and who you were and really discover what you wanted to do in your passion in life? You know, it's very possible. I mean, I, I love writing, um, but I've been freelancing for 30 years and it's like, it's a, it's a lot. It's a, it's a hard to make a living that way. And you have to constantly hustle for work. So writing the book was a real gift because it was one project for two years. Um, and that's when I decided to make this pivot towards social work as well. And I'd like to keep writing, but I do also really want to be of service. And I do think somehow I was going to have to get out of my way and Peter was going to have to get out of my way for a long time after he died. When I was in counseling, I would tell my therapist, I can hear his voice cutting me down and saying, you'll never. Mm. And she said, you know, that's your voice. It sounds like him, but like, it's really you. And Mm. it took me a long time to realize like, she's right. I hear him, but is, is it me? Um, You know, like, but I think, I think you're right. I think, I mean, I, I think in some ways he had to move on because I, I also feel like, um, I described this, I did an interview for NPR that I picked up his ashes and I had them in my office. I had to bring them back after he died. And um, I felt so guilty that I had not been able to help him, even though I know it wasn't my fault. I felt like I'm an adult, I should have seen this. And so when he was, it was in the office, it felt like all of a sudden it was very peaceful. And I remember like saying to the box, like, you're okay now, I'm gonna take care of everything. And there was a part of me that thought, well, at least, He's not suffering. He's not always trying to get drugs. He's not always sick from the lack of drugs. He's not always unhappy and striving. Like, you know, certainly I would rather he was alive and healthy, but he was never really healthy. He was always struggling with stuff. And it did feel kind of like for him, it was, it felt peaceful. And for me, it felt like, okay, now this chaos in my life is is not there anymore. Now I can think about, you know, what do I want my life to look like? Um, I hate to, I hate to admit that that's true because it's like, I didn't, I don't think he had to die for this to happen, but certainly him dying did enable me to say like, well, this is gone now. So, you know, what is my life going to look like? You know, I'm no longer trying to prove to Peter, look, look, I'm worth something. Like I'm going to be successful without you. You know, it's like, all right, well now I'm going to have to figure out what do I want just because I want, I want to do it. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, it has been a real, you know, process to say the least. Well, just an up and down journey with grief and loss and just all those mixed feelings of sadness and regret and anger, but then relief and yeah, it's a real roller coaster. But even though Peter's not here with us anymore, I think his story lives on through this memoir you've written. And what I was so impressed by is just the fact that your memoir wasn't just this personal recounting of what happened, which is of course very important because we learn through stories. We learn through other people's stories. And when we feel like it speaks to us, we're like, okay, that, that spoke to me, but also you provided scientific knowledge and education. You interviewed lots of people, you did your homework. And I felt like the memoir was also very educational from that point of view. And great. 
I, I think what's so important for all of us to know is that there is hope for people who struggle with addiction. No matter how bad it gets, there's always a way to come back from the brink if you are able to sort of recognize in time, okay, I can't do this alone. Yeah. yeah. And I just need to reach out. I just need to reach out to one person, just take one step. It's not up to you to do everything else. And somebody like Peter, I could imagine, again, it's all for me. I have to do this. It's, it's for myself. I have to be the successful person that everybody sees. Keep yes, up this right. Yeah, I can't show I'm weak. Yeah, yeah. That's out of the question. Right? It was probably very difficult for him just to admit to one person, I need help. But that's truly the first step that you need to take if you are struggling with addiction or if you know somebody who's struggling yeah, with addiction. Yeah. You just have to make that one connection. You do not need to have the rest of the plan. That's right. You just need to be able to say to somebody, you know what? I'm, I've reached the limit of something here and I need help. I can't do yeah. this myself. Like, oh, that's all. I mean, if Peter had just said like, yeah, I am sick. I'm going to tell you something. I would have been like, I got it. Oh, I'm going to take care yeah. of it. I'm going to get you someplace where you can get help. I'll talk to your right. boss. I'll, but he, he couldn't do it. And I think so many professionals like him or people that are high achieving and are in positions where they think they cannot show that they're vulnerable, won't do it. I mean, he had all of this planned out to try to go through withdrawal himself. He had like withdrawal ease, this all natural remedy. He had enemas. I think those are something that you prepare. He had prepared, you could see that he wrote in this uh, journal that he was giving that he was going to, he was calling it the math test. He's like going to start math test. He was going to have to call out sick, but I think he probably started a few times and it was incredibly difficult. I mean, it's, I have seen people that are in, uh, that are right out of it and it's, it is very tough, but like you say, there, there are a lot of places and there are, you know, there's medically assisted withdrawal. There's a lot of options for going through that process that could be so much more humane than trying to do it on your, on your bedroom floor for two weeks. Yeah. Right. And even right. when you don't have the resources, there's a lot of scholarship beds in residential treatment centers that people don't realize, but a lot of residential treatment That's centers right. will have a scholarship bed that they allow somebody to stay there for free or for a very low cost. Obviously, group therapies like AA groups or even sure. non-12 step groups have helped people to get clean, even without the assistance sometimes of more concerted efforts with That's other true. professionals. And so there's always hope. There's always some place to start. And I think for people also who see themselves in your story, um, because in, in many ways, both you and Peter were codependent in different ways on one another. And we were, yeah. he, he would create problems and you were supposed to solve them. And then he would make, then that would make him feel better about himself. And then you would feel better about yourself because you it's solved the problem. So true. I have to tell you, we went to see a, um, we went to see, um, a, we were seeing a co-parenting therapist when we first split up because we didn't know how to parent kids as not a married couple. And um, I told this therapist, I had to call her and say like, Peter had passed away from a drug addiction. And she said, I have to tell you, you were the most codependent divorced couple I ever yeah. saw. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I think we probably did have, like, I think it's a very valid observation. Yeah. And I think so many people can resonate with that. I mean, I think codependency has this horrible it uh, sort of uh, implication, but you know what? We, we are all human beings. We all rely on each other for our emotional needs and that's just where it starts. And I think that's something that I would love for us to close this podcast with is talk about codependency, whether it's, you know, ad addiction to, a person, you know, just that the validation from that person, or it's 
codependency because there's a true addiction in place, or it's codependency because you try to over take care of somebody and stop them from failing at life. Yes. Um, There's all of these different ways that codependency can play out. So how can we heal ourselves from codependency? So I would love to go through some tips and ask for your insights on how you've been able to put this into place. I think that there's five primary tips when we think about healing codependency. And the first one is just an honest self-reflection, you know, just know that you might have your own predispositions to codependency, whether you learn them from your parents, or Mm -hmm. maybe it's a personality disposition, or maybe it's because you struggle with validation yourself. And just know that a lot of times when this happens, you might deny your own feelings and needs, especially things that are more of a nurturance or intimacy level, because Mm -hmm. it's almost like, well, how much does that matter? I don't want to be this weak person, but then you don't get your own needs met and you do everything in your power to try to avoid rejection or abandonment to yourself. But of course that creates a negative cycle. It actually leads to lower self-esteem and negative self-talk. So how were you able to get to a place to really honestly reflect on yourself and say, okay, like, I don't like this pattern. I want to change it. Well, I think one of the, that's such a, it's so hard to be self-reflective. Like when you're in the middle of it, I think I had a good therapist. I actually had a relationship about a year and a half after Peter and I split up. I started a relationship. I'm not in it anymore, but it was with somebody that was very self-aware. And Mm. he would always say like, when I would start spinning into like, well, Peter did this and, you know, and what I really wanted is I wanted some kind of validation from Peter that I was never going to get, you know, I had been trying to get it for 20 some odd years. And I wanted him to say, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't have let our marriage, I shouldn't have left. You know, you're mm. really so great. You know, like that, that was yeah. not going to happen, <laughs> yeah. but I, I kept trying to make it happen. And he would always say like, how is this serving you? How is this serving you? And I started to really ask myself, like, why are you doing this? How, how is this serving you? And Peter was, uh, and my dependence on him was, uh, he was my barometer, like for success. If I made him, if I could make him wish we hadn't split up, then I would have succeeded. Mm. And I think I, I had to work with the same therapist who said that voice is you, you know, to work with her to realize like using him as this kind of barometer or this litmus test was, was never going to be fulfilling for me. And I was never going to be able to move ahead. So I had to, I had to really, I had to actually, after we divorced, really try to separate from him and not let him in too closely in terms of like what I was doing with my dating life or, or more personal things, you know, and just try to try to keep it on a less deep level because he could, you know, kind of get inside my head and stuff. And also for one thing I wish I'd done is I wish I'd been less enabling in terms of making him feel good by serving him. You know, Mm -hmm. I would get my support. And so I would make the family calendar and remind him I became another secretary. Mm. And I, and he acted as if I should feel like that was my job since I was getting support. I wish, I wish that before he had died, I had done the work of separating from that and saying like, no, actually I am a valuable person in your life and in our children's life. And this is what is required for us to maintain our life. And I don't owe you something, you know, yep. but I didn't have the, um, I'd, I didn't have the sense of self-worth or the self-esteem or the self-confidence at that point to, yeah. to do that. So yeah, but that that is such an important reflection of saying, you know what, these these were the things that were plaguing me at the time. And, and now that I know them, I can do something different. And that's why that self-reflection yeah. is so important. And I do wish that Peter had gotten to do that more because maybe yeah. we would be in a different place telling a different story right now. Maybe your memoir might have been about him coming back from the brink of yes, right. dying. 
but self-reflection is such an important piece of all of this. My second tip is to accept your behaviors and the outcomes. I mean, I think once people realize, okay, maybe I have codependent tendencies, then they start thinking, oh my gosh, what could I have done differently? I know, I know that you said that too yes, in our conversation right. and in this book, but accept what has happened. And that includes loss and that includes grief and that includes all the things that you could have done differently, but know that ultimately it is on the person who is addicted and not on you. So you have to release yourself from that responsibility. And in fact, you had to help your son release himself from that responsibility because he felt very responsible. Like maybe I should have saved dad. So what advice do you have for people who feel like they're just beating themselves up? Like, how could I not see this? Could I have done something to save this person? Right. And even talking to a child, because your son was 16 at the time. He was a child. And that yeah. that just, that hurts me to think that he felt like he could have saved his dad's life. He did. And I mean, we were lucky because we had grief counselors there that had been ER, retired ER nurses that had seen a lot of this same thing. And mm-hmm. I remember when they were saying to my son, he was like, so I just need to know, I just need to know, I couldn't have saved him. And they said, you know, no, it's not up to you to save somebody that's struggling with an addiction. They have to want to get help. You can't push them into it. And that actually was very freeing for me. Right. The third tip is to embark on your own version of abstinence, whatever that means. So for some people who are codependent, they're struggling with their own addiction. For some people, it's abstinence from any other kind of vices. And we've talked about this idea of needing that validation from the person you're in a romantic relationship with. And it can take a little while to reorient your actions so that they are motivated by your values and needs and feelings and not that of your partners. And I have actually advised some of my patients to take a relationship break. It's like, (laughs) just, just take a cleansing break from dating. Like just take a month off, like just try a month. And some of them are like, well, <laughs> a month, you know, cause there's a lot of, uh, serial daters or serial yes. monogamous. Oh, yeah. And they're like, a month sounds like forever. It's like, but just watch, it's going to be so freeing at the end of the month. Um, <laughs> So did you, did did you take a little break for yourself? And what was that like for you? Uh, Well, I ended the relationship that I was in for a long time, which was not super intense, but it Mm -hmm. was a really positive thing. And I moved from the West coast to the East coast. And I did, I just, I was, you know, I kept thinking, I think other people around you will say like, Oh, aren't you going to start dating? Aren't, don't you, you know, aren't you lonely? And the odd thing is you're exactly right. Like it's been a really wonderful experience just thinking like, you know what, I'm not going to put pressure on myself that way. I'm just going to go inward. And I, mm-hmm. I also belong to a Zen center in Manhattan, which is, mm-hmm. um, it's a Zen center for contemplative care. So a lot of what they do is end of life care, but it also allowed me to practice meditation and also like just thinking, why do you feel you need to date? Why do you feel you need someone? Are you really mm-hmm. lonely? All of those questions where I came to see that, like, actually I'm okay on my own, mm-hmm. which I think will make me a much better partner if I am ever in another relationship. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just a healthy thing to do. Even if you're in a relationship that is healthy, I, I I love my husband so much and (laughs) like, like any normal, you know, couple, we have our arguments and we have our difficulties that we have to get through, but I, I adore him. And I think we have a healthy relationship, but I can't tell you how much freeing it feels for me sometimes to take myself out to dinner. Like if I'm before before COVID and before you know, <laughs> we were stuck changed. at home. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I would be stuck somewhere in Los Angeles and you, 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 um, you might yeah. imagine we don't have public transportation the way you yes. do in New York. So we would be, I would be stuck. And I would just say, you know what, instead of trying to get home and sitting in two hours of traffic, I'm going to take myself 
to a five-star restaurant and have a three-course meal by myself. Yeah, and I love that. It makes me feel so good that I can do that and not feel dependent. Like I have to even call a friend. I'm like, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm just going to treat you know, myself. A, a lot of people can't. I know a lot yeah. of women that can't, that won't go out to dinner. I don't know if men won't either, but I mean, sometimes I'll be, I, before COVID, I'd be out to dinner with a book and I'd think, oh my God, this is so great. Like this yeah. is so wonderful. Yeah. It is I'm so, so great. with you. I think that's such a fantastic thing that you do that. It's so fun. And, you know, and also like having the bravery and I think I did this sort of in steps, but, you know, eventually having the bravery to not even have my phone out and just people watch and That's actually right. sitting at a table and asking for a table for one instead of sitting at the bar. So that's, you that's know, so you know what, all of those things are, that is so true. And I think you're right. I think it's oddly enough right now in our society, it takes an enormous amount of courage not to whip out the phone and yeah. pretend to be immersed in your Instagram feed oh. and just sit and look around, which is yeah. something we used to do in the olden days, but yes. Know. Yes. So, you know, go back to that. Don't be afraid of doing it. It's fun. Um, listen to me and Eileen. Um, <laughs> So the fourth tip, and this actually kind of goes along with this, but you know, it's a bit more developed. It's just get out of your comfort zone in some way, you know, do things for yourself, be comfortable in your own skin, speak up, try new things, try to establish healthier boundaries for anything that you feel like could need a little bit of a tune up because codependent relationships come from having very blurred boundaries. And you know, that that's another thing that I really like to do for myself is every once in a while, just pick up a tool bag and actually fix something in the house. My wow. husband is the one who does most of that. <laughs> and then usually when I fix something in the house, he'll have to fix it for me later. But like, <laughs> but I great. like, I like knowing that I might, I might be able to do it. You yeah. Know? And you're going to give it a shot. Yeah. I think yeah. that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's just, you know, people sometimes get into these comfort zones that are actually not good for them. And that's how codependency can develop. And, and they forget that they can do things for themselves. And so, but it's very comfortable. I think to live in, like, I feel like, I feel like when I was at the apex of codependence, I lived a very narrow life mm-hmm. because that in that little narrowness, I wasn't anxious, but right. you know, like what you talk about pushing past that and trying something different, like it's hard to imagine the person I was then doing it. Right. Well, it's like the devil, you know, so even though maybe it wasn't all that great, at least you knew how to deal with it. But once you push past that discomfort, then you realize the whole world opens up and that's, that's what's Uh, cool. I wish I, I wish I had done that. Well, we, you know, again, accept it now. and move on. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. And the last tip is just see the bigger picture. You know, when the going gets hard, see the bigger picture, tap back into your values. You know, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to change these patterns? Are you trying to be a better model for your kids? Are you trying to have a more meaningful and fulfilling life? Are you trying to make sure you have better friendships and romantic relationships going forward? So remember why you're doing this because all human beings want to run away from distress. And that's a exactly how addiction can start. It's that escapist coping strategy. Okay. I just need a break from all these. Yes, exactly. So don't let yourself go there. Remember the bigger picture. Remember that there's a reason why you're suffering a little bit now for the greater good. So Eileen, for you, why do you push past your own discomforts? What is your motivation? So I, I think what I've learned is that it is very easy to give yourself permission to to have a drink or three drinks or take a, uh, uh, take a Xanax or whatever. Cause you think, well, this was a really hard day or there's COVID mm-hmm. now and I haven't gotten out. So what mm-hmm. I have practiced doing over the last few years is really, and it sounds cliche, like sitting with the discomfort. So I'll just sit and I'll think kind of naming it, just saying like, I am anxious. I am restless. I am feeling sad. And I find that just kind of naming the discomfort, it eventually 
lessens and eventually goes away. It's like, I can have compassion for myself. Like, yes, this is a hard time. I'm in New York city during a pandemic and all the things I love to do, I can't do. And I'm feeling really isolated and it's like, okay, but that doesn't give me permission to like, just hit the scotch, you know, like I'm just going to sit with it. So I find that pushing past it actually makes it much more bearable. It's when I'm fighting it. And I think when other people are fighting it, however you fight it, whether it's by eating too much ice cream or drinking too much scotch, you know, that, or, or smoking too much pot, whatever it is. I, I think that's the problem. I think pushing past it and just saying like, I'm going to acknowledge that this is happening and it's okay because it's part of the, you know, wide range of human experience. I think that's something, you know, we often don't do that. We'll reach for the phone. We'll do whatever else to get that ping of dopamine, but to sit with it and just be with it is very hard. That is such profound insight. And I think people don't realize Eileen, that once you do push past it and you actually just let yourself feel those distressing emotions in the end, it actually makes it easier and it becomes less intense. It is counterintuitive. It kind of feels like when we have that intense emotion, we should just run away from it. But of course, the more you try to push it away, the more you're actually struggling with it. And the more that emotion actually hangs around. Even yeah. if, even if you had a night off from it because you drank yourself into oblivion, you wake right? up and it feels even more intense the next day. So I think that's such an important lesson. And for oh. people who don't believe us, you guys need to try it because really, <laughs> yeah. if you just sit with it, all emotions come and go like waves in the ocean and they will go away. They will subside no matter how difficult it is. So everybody who's listening, do hang in there. Eileen, I, I so enjoy talking to you. Oh, I love I your book. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. And your book smacked a story of white collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy is out everywhere where books are sold. So you guys all need to pick up a copy. If you feel like you can benefit from this, somebody in your life could benefit from this. This book might be even really good to give somebody who is struggling with addiction, but has shame and hasn't been able to really talk about it and seek help. It may motivate them to get help just hearing the story of compassion and understanding that it can happen to anyone. Eileen, where else can people find you and what you're up to? They can, they can go to my website, which is EileenZimmerman.com. Eileen is spelled a little weird. It's E-I-L-E-N-E. And you can find lots of independent place to buy places and bookstores to buy the book. And they can also, um, I have a blog of reader stories, people that a lot of people have written me. So you can see what other people are thinking and they share their stories of addiction and codependent relationships and failed marriages. And it's a wonderful, I felt like it was a wonderful place to connect and community. And when there are events again, I will certainly post them. So wonderful. thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, Eileen. And I will follow your career. It sounds like you'll have multiple (laughs) branches in your career. You'll have the social work piece, but I I think you'll also always write. I think, I mean, you're a beautiful writer and you're helping so many people through your writing. So I will keep in touch with you and see what you're doing. Thank you. And for everybody who listened to this episode, thank you for listening. And if you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. And remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life.